Awesome. Hey, it's so good to be here with you. Uh, if you're new with us, my name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and we are so glad that you are here. And the truth is, is that we're so glad you chose to be with us this morning. You could have gone somewhere else. You could have slept in. You could have done any number of things, but you chose to join and be with us. Um, real quickly, before we go any further, uh, how many of you guys know Lucas Kirchhoff? He's our missionary in, uh, in Peru. So he was in a motorcycle accident this week. Um, he's okay. He's got a concussion. It uh, doesn't seem like anything's broken, but he looks like he tore a rotator cuff and a few other things, and then he's also just really sore. So I'd like to pray for him this morning, and if you want to extend a hand out, and what we do, when, whenever you see somebody extend a hand, here's what's going on, just so you're not weirded out by it. No one's raising their hand like in class. No one has a question. It's basically just a way of saying, hey, God, we're just praying a blessing. So if you want to extend a hand, even though Lucas isn't here, uh, we know that God can touch him right now. And so, Father, we thank you. We thank you that Lucas is okay. Uh, Lord, that anytime motorcycle accidents happen, it can always go one of many different ways. And so, Lord, we're grateful uh, that he is not too badly injured. Uh, Lord, we pray for a quick recovery. And, Lord, as he takes this time off, I pray for, we pray for Genesis Church, where he's at and the role that he plays there. Be with them, Holy Spirit. He's in a third-world country where the, the hospitals are not as great as they are here. We're so grateful, um, Lord, for our hospital system. But, God, we pray right now for your supernatural healing on him. In Jesus' name, everybody said Amen. Uh, well, thank you guys so much uh, for doing that. Um, we're in this new series called Tove, where we are exploring kind of our new core values. And we've been refocusing on what are the things that God is calling us to be as a church. And really what we're hoping for is that God will reframe through Scripture, um, through everything that He wants to do, through our worship, through our community time, how we think about what it means to be the church. Now, you might be like, what does that word tov mean? Uh, tov is Hebrew for the word good. But much like our word love, it doesn't just mean good. It can mean multiple of things. It can be really good, excellent, as things should be. Uh, and so to, when God declares in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 15 times, it says the word good, tov. And throughout Scripture, whenever God is described, this word tov is often associated with it. And when we look at the person of Jesus, Jesus was Jewish. And even though he didn't speak Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic. The idea of tov, the goodness of God, being good, came, would, have, would have flowed in through every aspect of Jewish life. In fact, when Jesus at one point, they say, uh, they say hey, good teacher. And he, what he says here is, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And the idea would be Jesus is saying, why are you saying that I'm good unless you believe I'm God? Because only God is tov. And we as a church, what we're trying to be is a Tove-type church, a church that doesn't just do good or be good, but that brings good into the world around us. Um, now, some of you may not know this. We've opened up our traditional building over at, on, uh, on 4th Street on Tuesdays, Clear Lake Classical. We have like 100 and some odd kids running through our halls that are they're there all day long. If you're not familiar with Clear Lake Classical, it's our homeschooling network, and and they just use the space. Why? Because we want to bring good into our community. Amen? By the way, I'm, if you're new here, I love amen. So if you, if you hear me say amen, you can say amen. You can even say preach it, preach it, whatever you want to do. It's all good. Um, now, when we started this series, I started off talking about this idea of hope and hopelessness. And I talked, I shared a story, and I promised that I would show a picture about how when I was in high school, I thought the epitome of manliness was Tom Selleck. Do we have a picture of Tom Selleck? I think we do. That was me. There's the picture. 
check out that stash. And I wasn't joking. I'm all serious. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You can never unsee that. Um, please, please take it down. <laughs> I promised you I would show the picture, and there it is. I, I thought, here's the thing about hope, is that when you have hope, even a bad situation can appear hopeful if you have hope. And part of the responsibility of the church is that God has called us to bring hope bringers, hope givers, how we function as a church in our community. Because how many of you would agree that when we look out, whether it be in Clear Lake, Mason City, Iowa, the United States, it kind of feels hopeless at times, doesn't it? And what if our the calling that we have, if we believe that we're an outpost for the kingdom of God, our responsibility is not just to come and do church, but to be the church in and outside of the walls. How do we love our city? How do we love our neighbors? How do we love the people at the gym? How do we love our classmates, our other school teachers, the other people at the hospital? All How do we love them? How do we show them this amazing God that we worship? And I think it starts with when we realize what these three core values, what we're trying to accomplish. Now, the three words, we're trying to get them stuck into your brain, much like the word tov. The three words that were kind of encompass our reality, what we're trying to be at the church, is belong, believe, and become. And last week, if you were here, we did that whole Lego demonstration. You guys remember that? And I had several people who came up and said, Jason, I never thought about this idea of belonging as being connected. And I grabbed a couple Legos and I said, here's the thing. Every Lego has two things in common with humanity. You have the top piece of the Lego and the bottom piece of the Lego. And the bottom piece is for where the Lego connects to. And the top piece is for those who can connect to that Lego. And we are called to be connectors. We're called to help people belong. Now, what does that mean for us as a church? Well, what if the, the first thing that we can do to show people the love of Jesus, to help them understand how madly in love Jesus is with them, is by helping them feel like they can belong even if they don't quite believe yet. And I love this idea that when somebody walks into the church Regardless of whether or not we know the spiritual status of where they are with Jesus, we want every person who walks through the doors to feel like this is a place I could belong to. Because the reality is, is that all human beings have a longing to belong. We're created that way. When we go to the gym, I, I've been going to the gym now for about five, six months, and I go in the morning and I've developed friendships with people around at the gym. And here's the cool thing is once you feel like you belong there, what happens when you wake up in the morning and you don't want to go? You're encouraged to go. Why? Because you look forward to seeing that community you belong with, right? How many of you guys go to a gym and know what I'm talking about? Isn't it a true thing? When you start to develop that tribe, that, that connection on those mornings, and I'll trust you, there are tons of mornings where I'm like, dude, I don't want to go to the gym. I'd rather sleep and eat tacos. Like, I'd rather do anything, but because I've got this relationship, I want to go. What happens when people feel like they connect, they belong to a church? On those mornings where it's easier to sleep in, they're reminded, hey, wait, I've got community. I have a place where I belong. Cheers wasn't the first one who got it right. The church did. And so when we look at this idea of belonging, we have to understand that social media, uh, online communities, all these things are an attempt for people to feel like they belong, whether they're children or adults. 
And this is critical for us because what we want to be as a church is a place where people feel like they can belong. Now, there are different types of belonging, and I want you to understand this, okay? There are believers and unbelievers are those who have yet to believe And in order to go to church, you don't have to have everything figured out. You don't even have to believe in Jesus to go to a church. And I call this kind of the first stage, so check this out. There are types of belonging. First, it's for the searching and spiritually wandering. These are people who maybe aren't Christian yet, who are coming because they're curious. Maybe someone invited them, or maybe there was just something drawing them in, and they didn't know what it was, and so they came into the doors of the church, sometimes afraid afraid that they were going to be struck down by a, ma- a mean and angry God who's going to be like, you can't go here. And that, I've never seen that happen, by the way. So if you're, if you're new to faith or exploring, Jesus wants you. He wants to have a relationship with you. And so for the first part, for the spiritually searching and wandering, they're looking to belong in a place. They want to feel welcome and wanted. It's why we have a hospitality team. But one of the things I said last week is what would happen if everybody, if the church started actually acting like the church, we wouldn't need a hospitality team. Why? Because we're the hospitality team. We only need it because people don't quite yet get it. Second, sometimes they come in and they want to belong to a mission. They love the idea of the sober house that we're doing. And, and I know there are non-Christians who want to donate to that because they believe in sobriety. They're not doing it because they love Jesus. They do it because they want to see good in the world. And then if there are some people who long to belong to a community, they want to feel connected. But let's make no mistake. We are a church. We love Jesus and we want everybody to encounter Jesus Christ. Amen? And so my hope is that if you're searching, if you're looking for a place to connect, a place to feel safe, a mission, my hope is that you'll encounter Jesus and surrender your life to Jesus because when you do that, now you don't just belong to a place, you belong to a king. And now once you belong to Jesus, now you belong to God's family. You are part of a church, part of a family. And then once you belong to God's family, then you belong to God's mission. His kingdom come and will be done. Because here's the thing. There are stages of belonging, and we see this from the person of Jesus, his entire ministry. He went to those who didn't feel like they belong. Why? Because belonging is tov. Belonging is good. God created us this way. Now, let's be clear. Jesus had a mission. Jesus didn't just come to make everybody feel so lovey-dovey, sloppy, agape. I mean, that's not what he was trying to accomplish. He was actually coming. Yes, I said sloppy, agape. It's, you're welcome. <laughs> Jesus had a mission to seek and to save the lost, but sometimes in order to break through so that they could hear the kingdom of God, so they could experience the kingdom of God, they first needed to feel like the kingdom of God wanted them there. So I want to I look at a couple stories uh, of some New Testament characters, and then we're going to get into our second value, which is belief. Because Jesus did come so that people would believe. That was his ultimate goal. Uh, first story is found in Luke chapter 19. How many of you guys remember this, the story of Zacchaeus? A wee little man was he, you know what I'm talking about? Short little dude. I I was probably, now here's the cool part. This is what I love about the ancient world. Jesus was probably around 5'6 to 5'8. I'm 5'6. If Jesus is 5'6, then 5'6 is a pretty good number. (laughs) You tall people, you really need Jesus more. That's all I'm I'm saying. (laughs) 
No, it's just the reality is we've gotten taller as, as we've progressed as a society, but Jesus was short, so short people and Jesus unite. So Zacchaeus was really short, and he was so short that he heard about this guy, Jesus, who was coming into town. And Zacchaeus is, he's so curious to see this person, Jesus, who tax collectors, which Zacchaeus was a tax collector. Zacchaeus hung out with prostitutes and drug addicts and alcoholics and pornographers and, and rapists, the abused, the afflicted. He, didn't, he just loved people, and people were drawn to him. And the best part about Jesus is that wherever Jesus was, it seemed like a party ensued. Because Jesus knew how to party. In the Hebrew, the word is parte. You're welcome for that as well. It's, it's Hebrew, I promise. Just take my word. Don't look it up. <laughs> Jesus is walking through town and Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. So because Zacchaeus is short, he climbs a sycamore tree to see him. And as he's looking, Jesus passes by. And I love this imagery. Jesus stops underneath and looks up at Zacchaeus. Tell me one other human being that Jesus ever looked up to. And he says, Zacchaeus, come down. I want to have dinner with you. Now, this would have been scandalous because if you have dinner with somebody, it means you approve of them. The Jews hated Zacchaeus because Zacchaeus was a Roman tax collector. And the way Roman tax collectors made their money is they had to take a certain percentage of your income for Rome. But Rome said, hey, in order to to pay you, you can add or take as much more as you want. So let's say taxes were 30%. Zacchaeus probably add an additional 30%, he became rich off of his own people. Everybody hated Zacchaeus. Jesus goes to dinner with Zacchaeus, and something happens. See, Zacchaeus was spiritually curious. He wanted to encounter Jesus. Jesus made Zacchaeus felt like he belonged to be with him. That's what dinner was. Something happens there. We don't know quite what it is, but we know that whatever happened, Zacchaeus All of a sudden, the lights turn on, and he begins to realize that he has sinned, and he needs to repent. And not not only does he realize this, but that's a practical repentance. And so here's what Zacchaeus does. Zacchaeus comes out and says, I have sinned. I'm going to give half of my money to the poor, and then I'm going to pay back every person I stole stole from four times the amount. In other words, Zacchaeus was going to go into poverty, and this does not mean Jesus is calling you to go into poverty. Understand this, Zacchaeus had had such an encounter with Jesus that he was willing to give up all the riches that he had stolen from other people. And it started because Jesus made Zacchaeus feel like he belonged. But here was Zacchaeus's or the response from Jesus. Check this out. Luke 19.9, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of of Abraham. In other words, he belongs, even if he's a tax collector. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus wanted Zacchaeus. He wants everybody to understand that you don't have to have your stuff put together in order to be part of this kingdom that God is bringing. But you do have to believe. Next is the story we find in John chapter 4, the woman at the well She's spiritually thirsty. Now, Jesus has been going out, and he's been doing ministry, and they're by this town of Samaria. Now, let me give you a little geography lesson. Samaria is on the outskirts. To go to Samaria, you actually have to go out of your way. The Jews hated Samaria so much that if they had to go through Samaria, a good Jew would choose to walk around it so as to not defile themselves by going through the city of Samaria. They hated Samaritans. They were half Jewish, half Gentiles, and to the Jews, they saw them as corrupted. 
Disciples go off to go get food, and Jesus is thirsty, and he travels into Samaria, the place where is not, they do not belong to Israel, and he meets a woman at the well in the middle of the day. Now, this is where context and geography is so important. See, to go out in the middle of the day, they're in the Middle East, it's really hot. If you wanted to draw water, you would normally go early in the morning or at night when it was cooler, not during the heat of the day, and you would always go with other people. So when the women would come to collect water, they would come in groups. Why? Because you had evil people who would look to do harm. You had sex traffickers, women who would be kidnapped. You had robbers and rapists, so they would come in groups. But this woman goes in the middle of the day by herself to draw water. It tells us something. She does not belong. She's on the outskirts both with the Jewish community and with her own people. And so Jesus comes up to her and he says, woman, can I have a drink? And she's like, why would you, a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan, for a drink? And Jesus then begins to have a conversation with her and says, listen, do you want a drink? Do you want it? You want this? I'll give you a gift of eternal water, water that is living, that will never run dry. Listen to what this is in, uh, in John chapter 4, verse 10. Here we go. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? That's Isaac and Jacob. That's the son, Jacob. Who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus knows her needs better than she does. And I want you to hear this, Jesus knows your needs better than you do. Jesus intimately knows you, even if you don't know him. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, one of the things we may not understand, because she feels so isolated from the community, every time she goes in the middle of the day by herself, it probably reminds her that she's all alone. How many of you guys have ever been in that place where you go to some place and it reminds you of your brokenness? You know what I'm talking about? Maybe it's that old bar that you used to go to, and every time you drive by it, you get that little pit in your stomach because you remember the time you got plastered there and how much you embarrassed yourself. Or maybe it's the relationship with that person that's been harmed because maybe you got into a big fight, and every time you see them, you're reminded of how you behave towards that person. I wonder if the reason why she was so anxious to not have to go back to the well is the well reminded her of her sin. Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Now, here's the thing. Most commentators believe that this woman was sleeping with other men, other wives' husbands. She wasn't just sleeping with anybody. When it says you have had five husbands, it was most likely she has had somebody else's husband. She's now on her fifth. But here's what I love about Jesus. Instead of bringing shame, he speaks truth. 
He speaks it out boldly. He's not hiding, but then listen to what he says. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you know you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. We all know people who are longing for love, for worth, for value, and go to the wrong source. Every person I've ever known who's had an affair, it's usually because something in their current relationship is leaving them devoid. And they're searching for love, and so they go to the wrong source. The same is true with food, drugs, alcohol, pornography. Every time we go to things that are unhealthy, it's always to fill a void in us. Would you agree with that? And Jesus knew this. So Jesus calls her out. He speaks truth about her sins because he knows the reason why she's out there in the middle of the day is that all the women, everybody knows who she is in town. She is a woman who has a lot of shame. And guess what she does? She does what most people do when confronted with shame. She tries and, and changes the subject. <laughs> she tries to make it a theological conversation, which, by the way, I've had people do this as well. I've had people that when we talk about things uncomfortable, especially religious people or people who think they're spiritual, they'll try and change the subject to get away from talking about shame to something that's, quote-unquote, holy or spiritual. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, there was this argument about where true worship happened. And Jesus is like, it doesn't matter where the mountain is. It doesn't matter where the worship takes place. What matters is this. A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Holy Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. This woman in all of her brokenness has more spiritual desire and awareness than any of the Pharisees and religious leaders around Jesus' time. She recognizes that there's something different about Jesus, even saying you must be a prophet. Interestingly, the Pharisees all hated Jesus because he said things they didn't like. This woman, an adulteress, a woman who was on the outskirts, actually had perception that I believe was spiritual insight. She understood there was something about Jesus. The woman then says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Jesus looks at her and says, I'm the one you're talking about. I'm the Messiah. She's thirsty and hungry and doesn't even know it. This was an outcast, not just from the Jews, but from her own people. And Jesus met to go meet with her, and he wanted her to know that they belonged in that moment together. That in spite of her sin, in spite of her ethnicity, in spite of her beliefs, Jesus wanted her to feel like she belonged. But not just so she could walk away and go, wow, I felt really loved, but so that she would believe. We have people who are coming through these doors who are longing to connect with something holy, and we serve a holy God. And that God wants them to know that this is a safe place where they can experience the goodness and the kindness, the tov of God through his people. You and I sometimes are the only Jesus that people will encounter. Now, interestingly, you'll notice who is not present here. It always takes two to tango, right? The, the man's not there, but Jesus is addressing her. 
And Jesus understands her brokenness. Now, sometimes we're going to have people who come through our doors. Some of you might be here right now. Maybe you're coming with some brokenness in your life. And maybe you're carrying some shame and some guilt because of sins that you've committed. And I'm here to tell you this. In Jesus, there is forgiveness. In Jesus, there is wholeness. In Jesus, there is healing. Amen? And regardless of whether or not you have your life together, welcome to the party. None of us do. (laughs) We are all a bunch of sinners in need of a Savior who desperately want to look to Jesus, to the person of Christ, to save us, but more importantly, to show us what it means to be his people. Jesus' mission was not just to help people know they belong. He wanted them to have an encounter with the tov, the goodness of God. He wanted them to believe. Last week, I had somebody ask me, after we talked about belonging, and I understand why they asked. They said, Jason, I, 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 I get, I'm paraphrasing here, by the way, I get that we're talking about belonging, but are we going to go deeper than that? Is that all we're going to be, is just a church that wants people to feel like we belong? Yes, 100% we're going deeper because we're a church in love with Jesus. And hope and salvation is found in Jesus alone. I am unashamedly about that. I have no problem telling that, but we want people to understand that it starts with belonging. Belonging to a church isn't what saves you or what makes you a Christian. Believing and belonging to Jesus is. Please be clear. I want you to hear that. Just because you go to a Lutheran church doesn't make you a Christian. Just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a hamburger. Or parking your car in the garage doesn't make you a car. What makes you a Christian is when you believe and then belong to Jesus. And that's what I want for you. That's what God wants for you. Sometimes the way God gets a hold of people's hearts and minds, their lives, is that the journey begins through believing by helping them understand that they belong, that they can have a spiritual home, which then begs some questions. What are we asking people to believe in? What does it actually mean to believe? What does it even look like to believe? Does it matter what a person believes? Are there steps to belief? So here's the first question. Is belief enough? What are we asking you to believe in and why? When Jesus began his public ministry, he started by offering a challenge and an invitation. This is how it went. The time has come. This is Mark chapter 1. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. The first part is that invitation to believe is to repent from your old way. Repent literally means to do an about face. Repentance is I'm going this way, and to repent means now I go this way. That's what repentance means. Repent is to turn around, but the belief part is, is believing that the other way is better than the previous way you went. Does that make sense? See, we have all kinds of people that they repent, but this is what they think repentance is. My sin's this way, and I'm just going to go this way. They just go to a different sin. It's the person who gives up drinking and then becomes, then overeats and gains 400 pounds. Still a sin. That's the pot calling the kettle black. I get that. I've struggled with weight. I know how easy it is to turn, instead of turning away from sin, to just go to another sin to feel better about the previous sin you committed. To repent and believe. But what are you believing in? The good news. The good news is not just that if you believe in Jesus, you go to heaven. Though we do believe that's part of it. See, as Christians, we've made the gospel more about something we go to in the later future instead of something that affects us now. 
And so what Jesus is saying is this word good news is interesting. It comes from the word evangelion in Greek, which means the gospel. And it was actually borrowed from the Roman Empire. And the way the Roman Empire did it was this. Check this out. Anytime a new Caesar came into power or the birth of a king, they would send out a herald, an evangelist, who would proclaim the good news of Rome. And the good news of Rome is that a new king was in power. Now, if you know anything about the Roman empires, they went through Caesars like French fries. It seemed like every other year there was a new Caesar in power because how they got power was through violence and struggle. And so there was constantly this good news of Rome. Hey, Nero's in power. Oh, wait, now Nero's now. Now we've got a new king. Now it's Caligula. Now it's this guy. It's Vespasian. Over and over and over again, they're looking for hope that was going to come from a Caesar. And Jesus comes and he declares, no, I am the good news. See, the gospel is not just believing that Jesus lived a sinless and perfect life. He did. Not just that he died on a cross for my sins and rose from the dead, which he did. But the gospel is not, he did those things so I can get to heaven and get out of this place. We are called to be the church here and now. God is not asking us to escape the world. He's asking us to go into it and bring the tove, the goodness of God. Amen? Some Christians think the goal is to just get out of this place and let the world burn. We have a responsibility our responsibility is to bring the goodness of God into the world, a very broken world, around us. The gospel is also not just believing in Jesus and his teachings so that you can be a better moral person, though following Jesus you certainly will. Sometimes we think the goal of Christianity is just, oh, I really hope so-and-so becomes a Christian so they'll stop drinking and stop doing drugs. And No, that's a byproduct. That's not the goal. The byproduct of following Jesus is you begin to look like Jesus and act like Jesus, which means, yes, you're going to be moral, you're going to be ethical, but that's not the goal, because if that's the goal, then it's all works-based theology. Believing in God to make you feel better about yourself by being a better person is not what God is after. The gospel is also not just good advice. Too many Christians go to church just thinking this is good advice. Jesus said, I am king. The phrase Jesus is Lord would have been tantamount to treason because Caesar was Lord. When we say that Jesus is Lord, we're saying he is the king of our life. He rules and reigns. So what is the gospel exactly? One of my favorite scholars and authors is this guy named N.T. Wright. And he has some amazing work written on this. And here's the thing. Um, this is not, the idea of the gospel is not unique to Christianity. It's not. The new Caesar, Jesus says Caesar, just like the Caesar of old, every time a Caesar came into power, here's what he demanded. He demanded your life, your loyalty, and yes, your taxes. When Jesus announced that he was the Lord, that he was the gospel, that he was the new Caesar, he still wants your love, he still wants your life, he still wants your loyalty. And when we give our finances, we do it generously, this isn't a finance talk. I just want to make that abundantly clear. Listen to what N.T. Wright wrote. Jesus of Nazareth was a real man living and dying at a turbulent moment in real space-time history. His message and the message about him that the early Christians called good news was not about how to escape the world. 
That was about how the one true God was changing it radically and forever. The Christian claim, remarkably, is that the world is a different place in a different way, not because of Augustus or Trump or Biden or any other political leader, but because of Jesus. The good news is that when the gospel is lived out through his people, it changes the world now. Our hope is not in Trump. Our hope is not in Biden. Our hope is not in any political system. Our hope is not in the police department or the army or navy or marines. Our hope is not in the newest diet fad. Our hope is in Jesus Christ. And when we live out that hope, it changes the world. That's what we're called to be. In a nutshell, believing in Jesus is believing our salvation is found and found in Him alone, but we need a bigger picture of salvation. It means realizing Jesus is not a king or just a better king. It means He's the best possible king. He is the one true king. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, that good news that Jesus is king, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now check this out. Let me break this down for you, Romans chapter 1. The gospel, believing Jesus is king, is where we find the power of God for salvation. Salvation is found through Christ alone. It's not found in going to church. It's not found in your good deeds. It's not found in even being religious. It's found in submitting your life to Jesus. That's the power of God. But listen to what he says next. King Jesus reveals that righteousness, the faithfulness, the goodness, the love, the compassion, the justice. All of that righteousness that Jesus is talking about, that Paul is talking about, that's tov. Tov is who God is. Believing in Jesus means putting our faith, our trust in Jesus into action. Because if you look at the last part, he says this, the righteous will live by faith. Not just believe by faith, they will live by faith. In other words, when the gospel has really gotten a hold of you, when belief actually gets a hold of your life, it will move into other areas of your life. It will transform you. You will become an agent of Tov. You will be the one bringing Tov into the world. Now, does belief matter? 100%. Here's the thing. I, was, I, I had dinner last night with a couple from our church, and we were talking about um, when non-Christians say the Lord's name in vain. How many of you guys get annoyed when people say God's name in vain? It's fair that you do. It really is. I stopped being annoyed, and you want to know why? Because every time somebody takes Jesus' name in vain, I go, they must not be talking about my Jesus. They must be talking about a different one, because if they knew my Jesus, they wouldn't be saying that. Much like I grew up in San Diego. Maybe they're talking about Jesus. I don't know. Because what's the description of Jesus? Because the Jesus I know, I would never take his name in vain because I know what he's done for me. So when they say that, they must be talking about somebody else, which then makes me go, wow, how can I show them the real Jesus? I stopped being offended because I realized they did not know the king they were talking about. I want people to encounter the radical love of Jesus, but does this matter? Well, sometimes... We think the goal is just intellectual exercise, belief. Do you believe Jesus was born in the Virgin Mary? Yes, check. Do you believe Jesus died for people's sins? Yes, check. Do you believe Jesus rose from the dead? Yes, check. 
These are all true, but here's the problem. James chapter 2. You believe there is one God? Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Did you know the demons checked every one of those boxes? It's not just belief in Jesus that saves you. It's believing Jesus is your Lord and Savior that saves you. Belief actually matters. And belief, what's the evidence of our faith, is faith put into action. James 2.18. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. The evidence that Jesus has made an impact in my life is how I live. Now, if you want to do a really fun exercise, read Hebrews chapter 11. Maybe that's a homework assignment for you all if you want to take it. Hebrews chapter 11 is called the Hall of Faith. These are all men and women whose faith was put into practice. Because faith is meant to change us, belief changes us. Hebrews 11, 1 through 2. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. There is an evidence that they believed in for their faith. And this is why this matters. Our three core values, belong, believe, become. I believe that when we do these things well, they become the evidence of why faith and belief matters. Because when someone walks through our doors and they encounter that they can belong, even if they don't have it figured out, they don't know what they believe, I think it points them to the goodness of God. It becomes evidence. When they see Christians believing and living out their faith, I believe it becomes evidence of the goodness of God, the tov of God, the same as becoming. You don't have to believe to belong, but we want people to see that we believe. Why? Because believing leads to the next thing, becoming. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week. The Bible emphasizes the importance belief of belief over and over again. In John chapter 1, he came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, when you believe in Jesus as King and Lord, you become part of the family. John 3, 14 through 18. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. When you believe in Jesus, you will not be condemned. Romans 3, we know this. Now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. In Jesus you are made righteous, Romans 6, 8. Now if we died with, we, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Christ. Romans 10, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now there are some of you here who struggle with doubt. I want to tell you, so do I. I've wrestled with doubt most of my Christian walk. As a pastor, I wrestle. There are times that I'll get done and I'll go, God, is this even real? And then I'm reminded of why I believe. I want to show you guys an illustration. Check this out. See, here's the thing. If you struggle with doubt, welcome to being human. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of, un- the opposite of belief is not doubt. It's unbelief. It's refusing to believe. Doubt is a human thing. Every thinking human being has the ability to doubt. Now, there are some of you who have the gift of faith, and you're like, Jason, I've never doubted in my life. That's amazing. But if you're wrestling with doubt, it's okay. Tim Keller wrote this, A faith without without some doubts is like a human body without antibodies. 
People who blindly go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of, of a smart skeptic. So why do we believe? Well, first of all, we do not have a blind faith. I believe we have an intellectual faith, one that is based on evidence. Okay, we're going to play a little game here. Ready? I have something in my pocket. We're gonna, what do you guys think is in my pocket? Anybody? Why do you think there's keys in my pocket? Because where does everybody put keys? In your pocket. How many of you have keys in your pocket right now? Does anybody know for sure there's keys in my pocket? You're going to listen. If I shake it around, what do you hear? You think you hear keys. What if I pulled it out and it was little toy cars, right? No. You're going, that's got to be keys. Why? Because the evidence points to the fact that keys go in a pocket. The evidence is there, but until you see the keys, you have faith. Faith is not blind. Faith, there is an evidence of faith. And when we look at the person of God, we look at the person of Jesus, the reason I believe this is what helps me through my doubts is not that I have everything perfectly figured out, but when I look at the person of Jesus, when I look at the goodness of Jesus, when I look at the church, being the church as God called it to be, I go, that explains so much more than anything else in the world. Amen? I don't find any, I don't find hope nearly as much anywhere else in the world that I do in the person of Christ. When I see the church loving one another, when I see the church being the church, it reminds me that we have an evidence for our faith. How many of you have ever been out in nature and looked up at the stars and just went, that's amazing? How many of you ever looked at that and went, goes, there's gotta be a God? Or how about the first time you held your baby? And you look at this life that developed in a womb and you go, oh my gosh, there has to be a God. How many of you have ever experienced a radical love so different than the world that it points you to something totally other than what the world has? That's all evidence. Now, is it still faith? Yes, because until you see what's in my pocket, it is believing what is unseen. One day, we're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to reveal himself, and now we no longer need faith. Does it take faith to believe in these keys now? No, because you've seen them. Matter of fact, if I were to throw them to you, you'd touch them and go, now this must be real. Faith is called to something more. So here's what we're going to do. This idea of faith is tov, believing is tov. We, uh, we have a gift for everybody, and as you come up to bring your tithe and offering, or not, even if you just want to come up, we have these little skeleton keys. And we're going to give these to you. And here's what I'm going to encourage you. You know what I love about keys? The natural response is that every key is supposed to have a home. Right? Most keys have a lock attached to it. You have a place that you can belong. But better yet is this. Sometimes we need reminders of why we believe. And here's my hope for you today. As we close in this last song, and as you come with your tithe and offering, or, or just coming up to receive this, Take one of these, if you want to put it on a necklace, you want to put it on your keychain, put it on your desk, wherever you want to put it. Put it someplace that every time you look at it, you're reminded why you believe. And if you haven't quite figured out this faith thing yet, put it somewhere to help you and say, God, help me to see why I believe, why I should believe. What is the goodness of God? What is God's tov? We're going to close with this final song. And, and when we're coming up, I want to invite you to stand and worship. And when you're ready to come, and we're going to worship a king, a good king, a loving king, a king who is tov, 
a king who is crazy about you, that brings the hope of the gospel. I want to invite you to come and experience a good God. Amen? So when you're ready, come and join us.